Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, everybody. Buck Sexton here with you now. Uh, Thank you so much for joining. We will start off the show in just a, a couple of moments here with the completely appalling, disgusting, and mind-blowing revelations about, let's be honest, one of the most powerful Democrats in the country. And that, that you need to keep that headline, that tagline in mind. Harvey Weinstein was one of the most influential, most powerful leftists in the United States of America. And in print today, there were multiple women accusing him of previous not just sexual harassment but sexual assault and this is a guy who you you can't even tally up all the photos with the clintons with the obamas obama's daughter went to work for him at his company that's how connected harvey weinstein was some of the the giants of hollywood owe their careers to this guy and now turn around and say oh i had no idea Hold that for one moment, just to give you a sense of where else we are going here on the show, and then we'll dig into this fetid, grotesque mess that is the Weinstein debacle and all of the virtue-signaling, self-righteous, sanctimonious Democrats who are in a panic now because, looks like we can't just pretend that Republicans are waging some war on women and Democrats are are all all the feminists are Democrats. Yeah, we'll return to that in a moment. But uh, later on in this hour, we will look into the latest on the Las Vegas shooting. I have been telling you for days that he's a psychopath. And if there was a political motive, we would know. And so far, that seems to be the case. His motive was uh, mass murder and mayhem and evil. And he had no connection, no basic human decency uh, that would have. In any normal person said that this is the most heinous act really imaginable. Uh, But there was a timeline that law enforcement gave us. And as of last night, they changed it. And I know that we want to focus on uh, narratives in the aftermath of a horrific murder like that that are positive. We want to focus on uh, on the heroes, which we did here on the show, because there were heroes. We want to focus on law enforcement and first responders and those who saved lives. And we've done that. But we also have to be honest about what an after action report of that event was all about. What did law enforcement do right? What did law enforcement do wrong or could have done better? Because there's no law that would have stopped that guy, but there might be different police procedures that would limit at least the casualties from a mass casualty event like that it's at least worth the discussion we owe it to those who are lost the family those uh who have been lost their families and 
and all of us to make sure that we have the best procedures in place. And I, I want to address that issue, the timeline, because it just doesn't add up, everybody. It's not a conspiracy. It's just all of a sudden now we're told that police uh, were the, 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 the well, the details. I'll get into the details in a bit because if I get into them now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead in that segment. So, and I want you to hear me out on that. And especially, I know we have a lot of military listen to the show, uh, active and, and prior military, and also a lot of law enforcement. Any of you who have tactical law enforcement experience, which I do not, um, please do weigh in and tell me what we may be missing here. Because we were told that the uh, security guard at the casino was essentially the reason for the stoppage of Paddock's mass murder spree because he went into the hallway. But no, actually, he was shot before Paddock started shooting everybody outside, which means that there were six minutes where you had somebody shot and the police weren't, you know, there was no additional reinforcements or anything sent up to the area of that room. And then they waited for about an hour after they knew that they had a mass murderer up in this hotel room before they went into the room. And that's that's a big change of the timeline. I'll give we'll get into those specifics coming up here. So uh, based on the press conference from last night, also uh, some big changes in the uh, NFL feud over kneeling, protesting, all that stuff. And some updates on Trump's uh, back and forth with the Senate. And if I have time as well, we'll get into the latest on the Islamic State. But now that I've given you a sense of where we are going here over the course of the show. This Weinstein thing is uh, is just grotesque, and there are no people here who are now jumping on the bandwagon. There's all this pile, and I'm not talking about the victims because I understand why victims won't come forward, even after there's been because there's a trauma attached. But I'm talking about these these Hollywood types that you know for a couple of days they were all quiet. They're waiting to see. They were fence sitting. On this guy who is so powerful, so connected to the Democrat Party, revered in top elite Hollywood circles. Meryl Streep referred to him as a god, I think at the Oscars, right, or wherever, in in front of like as many people as humanly possible. And this loathsome, predatory, disgusting human being was able to go and do things for decades that the non-Harvey Weinsteins of the world, you could even argue the non-Bill Clintons of the world too, I would put that in there. But if you're not Harvey Weinstein and you do some of the things that this guy did, any of the things that were alleged today, you, you don't have to just worry about your career. You're looking at prison time, serious prison time. And he was not just... Uh, able to go on about his assault spree and all these just really horrific uh, machinations to just prey on people, prey on their insecurities, prey on their dreams. I mean, there's so much. I mean, he was ripping, uh, ripping away from people, from young women in this, in this industry, the media industry, which is a terrible industry. I will have you all know in general. I mean, I, you know, I, all of us in it, and, and the news media, is a, it's not quite the way it is in Hollywood, but there's a fair amount of stuff that goes on in the, in the news media side of things that mirrors what happens in the, 
what happens on the Hollywood side. But when you when you look into this and you see what he was able to do for so long, he had enablers. He had one component of this that I think never gets enough attention is that he had an army of lawyers at his beck and call who would help him silence women that he had allegedly sexually assaulted. What kind of lawyer does that and thinks that he or she is ethical? What kind of lawyer does that and thinks that he or she should get a good night's sleep? Now, I understand that Harvey Weinstein's the one that is doing this stuff, but there are there's a lot of blame, a lot of guilt to go around. And this sudden desire to assert the uh, the moral outrage of the elite left. And we're talking, I mean, you know, you got uh, you know, Jake Tapper over at CNN is is going in on this uh, both barrels. Uh, you've got actors and actresses all over the place. And again, not talking about victims. That's different. I'm talking about people that are just like, oh, yeah, he's terrible. I, I knew he was terrible. Uh, Tapper's just saying that this is gross no matter who you are or politics. And, and in that, he's right. But you have all these people that are now... Oh, and Hillary Clinton finally released a statement. I'm not waiting for Hillary Clinton's statement on this. Hillary Clinton effectively wrote the book on maligning and threatening women who have been sexually assaulted. Hillary Clinton was not just an enabler. She was complicit while her husband was the president of the United States. Not just before, while he was president. Because it was in her interest at the time. This moral rot, this fetid, putrid, filthy, immoral approach to, well, everything for someone like Harvey Weinstein, is actually indicative of a much broader mindset within leftist circles because they frown on traditional morality, they frown on natural law, or they just object to these things entirely. They make fun of people who are not who are who are religious in the sense that they believe that there are religious dogmas and there there are, there's religious orthodoxy. Religion is not, you know, I'm a Buddhist one week and next week I'm a Zen master and the week after that I'm, you know, a unitarian and they make fun of those people, right? They think that that's all preposterous. And then they wonder why you have so many incredibly powerful Democrats that are engaged in behavior that's, you know, this isn't, oh, you know, people make mistakes. That happens when somebody transgresses. You know, I've seen stories about powerful individuals and they ruin their marriage and they ruin their career. But they made a mistake that that a normal moral person can look at it and say, all right, look, they got to They got to pay the price for that. But it was a mistake. What we have seen from these revelations about Weinstein, and it's, I can't, right now on, on the TV screens, you just see photo after photo of Weinstein with Obama, Weinstein with Clinton, Weinstein with Hillary, Weinstein with Bill. I mean, this guy was at the top of the heap. Top of the heap. I mean, you know, in terms of media power, you know, behind like Oprah and Spielberg. I mean, you know, I mean, he's in that same tier. So, and it's, and in elite circles, because he was somebody who would option books and and greenlight major film projects, he was a dream maker for people, 
right? He, he had that power. And what is so disgraceful about this is that he took that ability, he took that power to literally make people's dreams come true, to, to option that book into a movie, to give somebody that breakout role, to give somebody that, uh, or to buy somebody's screenplay to change their life. He took that, and instead of cherishing it and rewarding people for their labor and for their work and for their creativity and their brilliance. I mean, of course, some of that happened, too, right? There were movies that he made that are good movies. I'm not, but instead of just focusing on that, he was using this time and time again over decades for evil. I mean, he was using his powers for evil. He was abusing women. He was ruining lives. He was taking away their peace of mind, knowing the whole time that the cowards at the New York Times, the cowards at the non-Fox cable news networks, the cowards at all the major magazines and across the Democrat Party and certainly in Hollywood, which he basically owned, weren't going to do a thing about it, that they were going to hear the rumors they were going to hear the stories. Some of them were going to know about it firsthand, and it just wasn't in their interest. You cannot separate this Harvey Weinstein story from the way the Democrat Party has been doing business for a long time. We are to think that it's an accident, it's just a coincidence, that the woman who just asserted herself as the greatest breaker of glass ceilings of all time, the in a sense, the, the ultimate realization of baby boomer feminism hillary clinton only got to where she is let's not forget about this only got to where she is forget never mind the fact that you know she parlayed being first lady which is really a ceremonial position into a senate seat which she had no business but by maligning the accusers uh, against her husband while he was a sitting president of the united states everybody this is this is a reminder to all of us of why when the Democrat media is all oh, Trump, he's so terrible. Have you seen what he said about this? Yeah, please. You were all covering for Clinton for eight years and beyond. And then you were covering for Hillary. You know, when I say Clinton, Bill Clinton, and then you're covering for Hillary Clinton. Who was covering for Bill Clinton? It's so immoral. And it's to borrow a term the left likes it is uh, left likes it is systemic it is systematic it is system wide the rot has spread this immorality justified in the name of power is not limited to Weinstein at the top of the democrat party and the the corridors of progressive power right now it has become whether people want to admit it or not a defining characteristic I'll give you some of the de- and now we've got to get into some of the details of the Weinstein thing and then we will uh, I'll talk to you about the timeline in Las Vegas and then NFL and what do you think about all this my friends 844-900-BUCK 844-900-2825 am I overstating understanding just uh, understating just about right let me know we'll be right back the corruption that has been exposed in this whole Harvey Weinstein debacle is not just limited to Hollywood or the Democrat Party or the way that the media covered for him and for the way those other institutions uh, were feeding at the Weinstein trough without a second thought. It's also in the criminal justice system, my friends. Piece today in The New Yorker that is 
absolutely damning of Weinstein and uh, asserts multiple cases of sexual assault, naming women who are claiming, uh, going on the record, that allegedly Weinstein sexually assaulted them and the trauma that that caused them for, uh, in some cases, many, many years afterwards. And that the NYPD was called into this issue at one point, and now it's not an NYPD decision to prosecute or not. Cyrus Vance, the district attorney, was passed the information collected, rightly, by the NYPD as a result of a sexual assault complaint. A young actress, this was the, this was the Weinstein playbook. And when you read the details of it, it's so premeditated. Oh, he would have a woman at the meeting to start and then the woman would leave. Oh, the meeting would have to be at his hotel room, not at the, you know, it's just this guy. It's predatory behavior, predatory. This isn't a misunderstanding. This isn't two colleagues in the office and one thinks that the other one is interested. And, you know, like I said, normal people can make mistakes. We're not holding the Weinstein to a perfection standard. We're holding Weinstein to a not a monster standard, and he is failing it. Uh, he had this actress come in, and it's the casting couch, the classic stuff, and he groped her, which is a, which is a sexual assault and is a criminal offense. You know, he grabbed her chest, grabbed her breasts, and he called her and wanted to meet with her the next day. And she went and went to the NYPD. This is all written about in the New Yorker today. And wore a wire for her next meeting. We have the audio. And this is a little disturbing. Watch, there's nothing, there's no curses or anything, right? Yeah. But it's disturbing audio. And we have it. I want you to listen to it. And then I want to tell you what the district attorney said about this when he was given the audio. Uh, I'm telling you right now. What do we have to do here? Nothing. I'm going to take a shower. You sit there and have a drink. Water. I don't drink. Uh, can I stay on the bar? No. You must come here now. No. Please. No, I don't want to. I'm not doing anything with you. I'm, I'm very embarrassing. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. No, yesterday was a kind of aggressive for I me. Know, I, I need to know a person. I won't touched. do a thing. I don't want to do a thing, please. I swear I won't. Just sit with me. Don't embarrass me in the hotel. I'm here all the time. I sit know, with me. I, I promise. Don't want to. Please sit there. Please. Mm. One minute. No, I, ask I can't. You. Go to the bathroom. Please, I don't want to do something. I don't want go to. Go to the bathroom. Come here. Listen to me. I want to go downstairs. I'm not going to do anything. You'll never see me again after this. I'm not embarrassing you. It's just that I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I mean, don't have a thing with me. Please, I'm not going to do anything. I swear, my children, please come in. It goes on. There's more. He at one point lets it, lets it slip that, you know, he's just used to being able to grab women by, by their chest or wherever, and they just deal with it. That, that's what he's used to. He says. Uh, just remember this audio when you see all the photos of him with Obama and Hillary and all the Hollywood stars and starlets and all that stuff. We've got more, and we'll take your calls. We'll be uh, back with that in just a few. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Uh, how far do you think this rot has spread in the Democrat Party? We'll get to that. All right, team, so we're working through this latest series of allegations about Harvey Weinstein. Look, he's he's admitted to... Bad conduct. Right? So he's not innocent. It's just a question of how guilty he is and whether it's a function of uh, criminal. You know, are, are there still some issues of criminal uh, merit here? I mean, meaning that he could be prosecuted for. I don't know. It depends on what comes out. How recent it was too. the statute of limitations could come into effect here. 
but there's more. So he, he met with this woman. He groped her. She meets him the next day. NYPD has her wear a wire. She went into the precinct. I mean, she did what many of us say. If you're sexually assaulted, this is, you know, your first option is not to go to the campus, you know, health advisor or whatever that'll tell you about your options. Uh, you know, go to the police. It's a police matter. And she did that. And she wore a wire. And I played for you a little bit of the conversation. I want to finish it off so you can hear how the rest of this went with Harvey Weinstein. On everything, I'm a famous I'm, guy. I'm feeling very uncomfortable right now. Please come in now, and one minute. And if you want to leave, when the guy comes with my Why jacket, yesterday you, can you touched my breast. Oh, please, I'm sorry. Just come on. I'm used to that. Are you used please. to that? Yes, come in. Because no, but I'm not used to that. I won't do it again. Come on, sit here. Sit here for a minute, please. No, I don't want to. If you do this now, you will embarrass me. But no, they will call me again. Sorry, I, I promise you I won't do anything. Guy, I know, but yes, there was too the much. Guy's coming. I will never do another thing to you five minutes. Don't ruin your friendship with me for five minutes. I know, but it's kind of like, it's too much for me, I can't. Please, you're making a big scene here. No, Please. but I want to leave. Okay, goodbye. Thank you. He's a, a bully, he's conniving, and he says, I'm used to that. What else do you need to know? About how this guy operates. I'm used to that. Yeah, I, I think we're all pretty clear on the fact that he is used to that. Uh, this is this is a moment in time when the uh, the left in this country is feeling a, a little a little twinge of panic, I think, because they're ostentatious pseudo feminism. The women's marches and the, uh, you know, I'm with her, with Hillary and all this stuff. Is actually, when it comes down to it, all for show. It's meaningless. Right. It's just propaganda for the easily fooled. You know, whether it was the war on women that Mitt Romney was waging based on what? Based on making a comment about binders full of women, which was a completely normal, legitimate comment. There was zero wrong with that comment, but they turned that into a whole campaign during the election. Binders full of women. Like they were talking to idiots. And quite honestly, if you thought that binders full of women was somehow offensive or weird, that's on you, right? I mean, not you listening, but anyone across the country didn't figure that one out on their own. We we see that the mask drops here. We see them exposed for who they are, whether it's Hillary, Obama, all these big Hollywood stars and celebrities. They were just covering this up for so long. And, you know, when you see the way that there, there'll be these little moments of outrage in Hollywood over uh Men and women having different a different pay scale in the same movie. Right. A male, the male lead, the female lead aren't paid the same. Oh, it's terrible. So horrifying, you know, in these uh, very highly paid male and female actors decide to make a big stink about it. This is just outrage theater. That's what all that is from Hollywood. It's outrage theater. They're they're used to doing things for attention. And there's something that's particularly satisfying about taking self-righteous and self-congratulatory political stances when you have an audience as a Hollywood star. And the fact that so many of them knew about this Weinstein thing 
There was a whole there was a whole slew of people. You know, you know, who's not going to get much attention here, as I said, the lawyers who were enabling this whole thing. And so many lawyers hide behind. I mean, look, I, some of my best friends, literally some of my best friends are lawyers. So very, very ethical people that are in my life are lawyers. But and, you know, there's nobody, nobody that you're uh, as thankful for in a in a bind as, as your close friend who's a good lawyer sometimes. Uh, but there's so much unethical conduct going on with these lawyers threatening to sue women for what? Making honest allegations about what was done to them. That's yeah, that's what lawyers. That's what Harvey's lawyers were doing. And. And uh, and then all so that they won't they'll sort of skate on this, his whole PR machine, people in his employ who are paid to, you know, put stories out into the press and page six and all these people. They won't be held to account for this. There is make no mistake about it. Zero bravery on display here from those who are just jumping on the bandwagon after it's only after it's clear that Harvey's finished. Only after it's clear that his whole, you know, oh, I'm going to go after the NRA. Yeah, that's not going to work. Now they're now they're jumping in and saying that, you know, he, he was gross and they knew this all along. So there's the PR apparatus, the lawyers. And also make them there are a lot of people that got ahead by doing Harvey Weinstein favors of all kinds, all kinds, men and women. Without going into any possible details here, just. Being on Harvey Weinstein's good side and selling your soul in the process was something a lot of people were willing to do. I can promise you that. And we won't find out that much about them, but they're out there, too. And they're part of the problem as well. They're part of the problem as well. All right. We've got literally every single line here. But before I go to that, just when people are saying things like the uh, what's Meryl Streep and others. Oh, you know, I didn't really know. Harvey was my best friend, but I didn't really know. Let me ask you this. How many of you? would spend a lot of time around somebody and, and have no inclination about the fact that they were a serial sexual predator. I, I know that I would know. I mean, if I really was close friends with somebody and this is how they were operating, this was not a one-off. This is not one woman 20 years ago. This wasn't one drunken night back in college or something. This is Weinstein's way of doing business. You know, right before he was going to the White House to hang out with Obama or right before he was throwing a multi-million dollar fundraiser for Hillary Clinton or right before he was raising countless millions of dollars for Democrat candidates all across the country. This is his MO. This was his method of operation. And if you think that anyone didn't know about this, these people who are telling you, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know. There's a show that I actually am quite fond of. I think it's very well written called 30 Rock. And this was a joke that was on 30 Rock back in 2012. Now, let me just play you the audio and then I'll put it in context. Then we'll take some calls. But remember, this was a TV show five, five years ago. This was on TV five years ago. Play the audio. Please. I'm not afraid of anyone in show business. I turned down intercourse with Harvey Weinstein on no less than three occasions out of five. It was known. It was known that this guy, you know, she's just so you understand the, the context here. That is a, uh, a, female actress who is describing her interactions to try to get roles with Harvey Weinstein. Now, that's only a joke if it's kind of known in the in the industry. You know, if Harvey Weinstein is like a good family man who would never do such a thing, do you think that joke goes over air? Do you, do you think that they, 
you know, you, would, would you let me ask you this for any of you out there? If you were in the movie business and that joke was out there about you, you know, uh, I think and you didn't have that reputation, you'd you'd not be OK with this. Right. But it was known. The only reason I play that joke for you is because it was known. Just like, who was it uh, with the Cosby thing? Remember? How did the Cosby thing finally break? It was uh, the comedian who came out. What was his name, Ty? Hannibal Burris. How does Hannibal Burris start making jokes about Bill Cosby raping women or, or, or drugging and whatever it was? I forget what the specific allegation. What did he say? Yeah, drugging and pills against women. That's a pretty specific thing for a comedian to say about somebody if it's not known. And how did it come out? Because people just knew. Just like some of the writers at 30 Rock, Weinstein, every they all knew. They all knew. I'm going to say they, people around him, people close to him. I mean, it's not everybody, but many more than are going to come out now and admit to it. Many more. All right. I know we've got a lot here. A uh, lot, of, lot of lines lit. Uh, let's take JJ in Virginia on WPTI. Hey, JJ. Hey, Buck, you actually... You actually crushed it tonight. Your monologue was spot on. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't enough. It was exact to the point where you should have been. Thank you, sir. We we finally have exposed the underbelly of the liberal agenda. And between the glass ceiling with Hillary and everything else, this is the Watergate of the Democratic Party. And I can't understate that enough, and we need to keep hammering this home and let it all come out because it will it'll come out on its own and just let it feed but we got to keep it alive in the media somehow some way thank you jay look i i agree by the way weinstein's I, i can tell you this he may be at the top of the predator food chain so to speak but he's not the only one no it's a it's a it's a the the culture it's the way the culture is they've been exposed yeah. And they're going to start to run. Yeah. JJ, thank you for calling in from Virginia, man. I appreciate it. Uh, this is the beginning of many more conversations, I think, related to. Oh, look at this. We've got uh, what a surprise. CNN is, is running a Russia story. <laughs> there we go. It's 645. It's prime time on the East Coast. It's time to talk about a Russia story. There we go. A former Trump advisor is pleading the fifth. There we go. Let's let's run with that one. My God. All right, uh, let's take uh, Richard in uh, Virginia on WWVA. Hey, Richard. Yeah, I was going to comment on something else. I still am. Not, not something else. I mean, something related to what you're talking about. But you were talking about how would you feel if you were, well, I'm not, a, I mean, me, I'm not in the movie business. I'm just a regular person. But I had a local radio station accuse me of being a sexual predator. Not a serial sexual predator, right? Right on the air, they they had a host called tell me uh, referred to me as a sexual predator and a prevert and a couple other things like that. None of those things are true. And I asked him, I said, you know something? I could sue you for that. Yeah, you could he sue said, them. Why didn't you? I did. Oh, you did? Okay. Did you win? I called a lawyer. I called a lawyer. I tried to sue. I called more than one. I called a couple of them and tried to sue them. And then when they, I. There was a host on there, another host. I told him that I tried to sue the station. He says, you actually tried to sue the station? I said, yes. When you refer to me as a sexual predator, or not you, you didn't, but a couple other people, they said that they saw me hanging around the school, and you got to pay attention to him like a uh, 
were six and six and seven eighth graders. Okay, Richard, we're getting a little. We're getting a little. Uh, what does this have to do with with Harvey Weinstein and what we're talking about? Okay, what it okay what it has to do with is with him. I don't know if you're saying are you just uh, are you making a map out of a molehill? It just seems to me when the actresses are there in Hollywood, they go to the, the tapes that you were playing. You know what it like? It sounded like that. Uh, all right, Richard, Richard, all right, I, I've given you a lot of time here to run on about a lot of stuff. Have you read the New Yorker article today? Do you know what the allegations no. are? No. Okay, you don't. It's that he raped three women. So the, 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 the audio that I played is not audio that deals specifically with that, but this is a guy who has a long standard, a longstanding pattern of sexual abuse towards women. I, I, I don't think, I mean, are you about to tell me that like women in Hollywood have some expectation of this or something? Because... I'm going to yeah. try to save you from saying some stuff on air that I really think you don't want to say. Okay. All right. Thank I, you. All I, right. I Richard's gone. Richard's gone. Thank you. Richard just, whoa. He's out. <laughs> he has been voted off the island right now. Uh, Felix in Pennsylvania. Hopefully not off the rails here. Uh, What's up, uh, Felix? Hey, can't iron skillet high. Steak, black and milk. Uh. Okay. What's on your mind, Felix? Okay. Uh, actually, Buck, I'm sorry. I, I called in very at the very beginning of your show, and I kind of wanted to give you a, a buck smack or a buck tap about something you said Friday. Uh-oh. What is it? If that's okay. Okay. I think that you misconstrued something when you said that uh, the former administration members, when they referred to ISIS as ISIL, they were being hoity-toity. But I believe they were actually being deliberately disrespectful of Israel and also showing their pro-Islamist tendencies. I've heard this before, and, I, and I've never found the argument compelling at all. So, but what? Well, the, the ISIL means, I, you know... I know what Islamic ISIL means, State Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, right. And, right, which, which includes Israel as Palestine. So. The, the Levant is just a reference to the, to the region. It, it doesn't include right, Israel region, as Palestine. But, when I looked it up, I thought it did, that it basically... No, uh, see, people, people, people tried to... I, I don't know where this got traction, but trust me, I mean, I used to speak to friends inside the government about why they were using this and why they weren't, and they were like, yeah, it's just weird, like Obama thinks it's more correct or whatever. There was no... Uh, there's, there's, there's not, this, I know, people, this kind of got traction on the internet, but the Levant is like saying the Near East. It, it, it's not specific right. to whether Israel exists or not, but I know people run with that. But I appreciate the uh, I appreciate but, the effort, Felix. Uh, Thank you for calling. I got to run into a break here. Uh, we'll come back. We'll take calls. Vegas. What happened with the timeline in Vegas? Let's get to that, and we'll be right back. The story broke five days ago. She got what hundred thousand uh, dollars from him. So why haven't we heard from her? Or the Obamas? You just heard Michelle Obama refer to Harvey Weinstein as a wonderful human being and a good friend. I think Hillary Clinton has earned the right to talk about what she damn well pleases when she damn well pleases. She doesn't owe anybody anything. President Obama, same thing. I am sure if he is asked about it in a public forum, he will talk about it as well. But I am just appalled. You know, the RNC chairwoman talked about hypocrisy. Let's talk about hypocrisy, right? Democrats did not elect. I had the, uh, yeah, cut it, cut it, cut it. I not please. Good God. Sorry. I had the uh, unique, exp- not unique. The I'm trying to think of a polite word. I have to I have to clean up the clean up the language for on air here. I had the interesting experience of being on air with her more than once. Uh, I've it, it is hard to find a, a person who would uh, assert more 
shameless talking points in favor of the Clintons. I don't think there is one. Like, there's no, there's not even the recognition of any external reality beyond whatever is beneficial to Hillary Clinton. It, it does. It literally nothing else matters. Nothing else in the world matters. What helps Hillary Clinton? That's what that woman will go on TV and say. And sure enough, she said that last night that Hillary has no obligation. Apparently, Hillary disagrees because she released a statement today saying she's appalled and everything. So, so clearly, there is some impact. Because remember, it's not just like, oh, you know, like Hillary has to comment on everything. She was taking big cash from Weinstein. He was throwing huge fundraisers for her. Weinstein, sexual predator. Uh, Epstein. Bill Clinton used to fly on his private jet. Epstein, convicted pedophile, I believe. Yeah, billionaire. Epstein. Yeah, check it out. True story. Media doesn't talk about it very much. Am I getting his name? Is his name? Am I getting the name wrong? I think it's Epstein. Yeah, I think I'm right. Okay, Ty's giving me the... uh, Obviously, we're talking about a convicted pedophile. you got to get the name right. But I'm pretty sure the guy's name is is, is Epstein. Uh, We'll check that in the break, and I'll correct it if, if, if I'm wrong. Um, but you know, I- I'm noticing that there- there's some stuff going on here, folks. This is not nothing. This is big, big stuff. Uh, at the height of the power, uh, at in in the corridors of power, the Democratic Party. Here you have just the most depraved moral rot, and people are still they were still until today defending it, but today it's finally now they're all scurrying for cover. Um. We're going to talk about Las Vegas, so let me know what you think happened there. Call me back in a few. Yes, the timeline associated with the original shot and Mr. Campos has changed through investigation. What we have learned is Mr. Campos was encountered by the suspect prior to his, uh, his shooting to the outside world. I have avoided being in any way conspiratorial about the horrific shooting in Las Vegas a week ago. I haven't been somebody who has gone forward with uh, flimsy theories about a second or third shooter. I haven't pretended, as some others in the media clearly have, I haven't pretended to have sources inside law enforcement who any minute are going to be breaking what the motive is in this shooting. This is the kind of thing that slightly uh, unscrupulous individuals will say because no one calls them out on it and it is fierce in the media world to get on tv so even in the aftermath of a tragedy like this there will be people who exaggerate their access to law enforcement or draw attention to themselves by pretending to have some bit of wisdom that they can't yet share but just let them tell everybody that they will at some point before they go to commercial break Uh, This is a very serious incident that affects the national conversation about guns. It is a tragedy for all Americans, and we are deeply saddened for those who are lost and their families. The truth matters in all of this, and we should still want to get to the bottom of everything that we can in the whole Las Vegas mass shooting uh, tragedy. And... That's why I last week even was saying to you, what's with this timeline? It just didn't make sense. Those of you who are listeners to this show will recall that I said, we got to look at this timeline. 75 minutes went by before they entered the shooter's room 
from the first shots that was out there. And you could say that this was just false reporting. But then again, you can look into what was said in some of the press conferences by law enforcement, and it seems strange, to say the least. His bravery um, was amazing because he remained with our officers, provided them the key pass to, to access the door and actually continued to help them clear rooms until our officer demanded that he go seek medical. So they had to make a change in the timeline, but this is a rather important change, isn't it? This is not minor. This is not just something uh, that you could skip over. This is not a, a detail that could have gotten wrong in the early frenzied hours to get information out to the public. We were told that the security guard in the hallway was a hero because of the timeline. We were told that he went up there after the shooting to help find the shooter and that police then came and because the shooting had stopped, this was the story that the security guard went up to find the source of the gunfire after it happened and he was wounded and then police came up and then he stayed in place for a while to help law enforcement before tending to the uh, gunshot wound that he had suffered. Now, why is that a timeline that we have had to now a week later revisit? I don't think that this is a conspiracy. I don't think that there's any ill intent here, but I do wonder if there was some decision in the upper reaches of law enforcement involved with this issue to change this a little bit because when you have a security guard shot in a casino in Las Vegas and six minutes go by without anyone getting to the room without anyone I mean the casinos have security everywhere this is a Las Vegas strip everybody and there was then this long period of time where law enforcement was there and they don't know why the shooting stopped. So th these are some very big unanswered questions in this whole process. And you will note that I was saying there's something wrong about this timeline over 70 minutes. Remember, the initial timeline was that security guard, uh, the, the shooting starts, the security guard goes to find where the source of the shooting was. The shooting only went on for about nine minutes. And the security guard goes to find him. He is shot. And then police arrive on the scene. But because the security guard was there, I think the assumption was, at least that's the assumption we were supposed to make, the shooting stopped outside. Uh, the shooting stopped out the window. And that's why police were able to wait on the scene so long before going in. Well, now we're told the shooting was happening. And uh, the security guard had already been shot. So there was that wasn't the cause of the stoppage of the shooting. So that means that law enforcement were on the scene for some period of time with this maniac paddock in the room, still able to fire out the window and kill many more people. And they waited for I, I don't know what the amount of time is right now. I mean, I, I'm wondering if we're going to have another timeline change. Is this. Is this a case? And look, given the level of casualties here and given the seriousness of this incident, 
I think we have to get right down into the facts and, and not say, okay, well, law enforcement just did their best and let's just leave it at that. Because I think of the Pulse nightclub and law enforcement was on the scene at the Pulse nightclub and there was this whole storyline about how they were worried about a bomb and that's why they didn't go in while there was active shooting happening and people were bleeding out inside. There was a SWAT team on the scene at the Pulse nightclub and they didn't go in and there was still gunfire and there were people bleeding and we were told about the bomb, but oh, we found out later on the bomb didn't enter into the equation until later on and there was no actual bomb threat to be concerned about, but they just were worried that there was a bomb that might make the whole place go up. That was rewriting of the situation. I also will take you to the transcripts of the Pulse nightclub shooter and the FBI's initial decision to redact references to ISIS and Allah and Islam in a way that was clownish. It was absolutely ham-fisted in just how uh, stupid and, I I would argue, irresponsible it was. The FBI did that. I'm not saying all the FBI, I'm not saying every field agent in the FBI got to vote, but some bureaucrats within the FBI or more likely, and I think this is the case, at the top of what was the Department of Justice at the time, which would mean Attorney General Loretta Lynch, who maybe got off the phone with Obama, I don't know. But somebody was told, change the transcripts of the Pulse nightclub shooting. Somebody spread a rumor to the press that there was a bomb threat inside, and that's why law enforcement on the scene did not go in right away while people were literally bleeding out on the ground and there was still gunfire inside. One guy. How many, how many, uh, how many police officers with body armor and long guns were on the scene? A bunch. Didn't go in for quite a while. And there was some criticism of this, and I, I understand that people... Don't want to be Monday morning quarterback, uh, quarterbacking law enforcement, especially on life or death issues where law enforcement is taking risks to their own lives. I, I understand this, right? I have law enforcement in my family. I, I'm not discounting the concerns of officer safety here. But if we're going to do an after action report on what happens in these situations, we have to be absolutely honest about what was done and what should be done differently in the future so that there are fewer People who lose their lives in these incidents, fewer families who are never going to be the same because of a mass shooter incident. That's the imperative here. There's a real obligation at work to find the truth on this. And so now we have additional details. And I, I had a feeling about this, my friends, last week. 75 minutes, that's too much time. That's too long. They don't know why the shooting stopped. And they waited an hour once they knew where the shooter was to go in, which means that at any point in time, he could have opened up again with one of those long guns sighted in with a tripod and killed people from a distance of hundreds of yards away. This is uh, something that needs more attention, my friends. I, we need to know why. All these people are also wrapped up in the motive. If you want to talk about how to stop these situations or at least limit the casualties, you have to dig into what the response was. And this response is looking increasingly like it was uh, 
mistaken in terms of how quickly officers on the scene went into that room and acted. That's um, we can invite on, and I will now because I think we're opening this up and we should have this discussion. Invite on an expert in uh, special weapons and tactics, SWAT or ESU, as we call it here in New York City. But I don't see an explanation for why there was such a long delay. And I also can't see an explanation for why the initial timeline was wrong and why a security guard who was there in that hallway for an unrelated alarm was there by happenstance, was being hailed as a hero in a press conference but a few days ago. And they were saying he was the reason the shooting stopped. We don't know why the shooting stopped initially. And the security guard who went up into that hallway had uh, uh, Jesus Campos had no idea, had no idea what was what was going on. He was up there for an unrelated alarm. My friends, this is this is a, a major change in this story, and it's important I want to know how they got this wrong. Maybe there's a completely logical explanation. Maybe it's just, but government telling us things that's not necessarily totally the way it happened to cover themselves, especially after a tragedy. It's not unthinkable. It's not unthinkable. All right, if you have any thoughts on this, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. I'll be back in just a few. Welcome back, team. I I just saw some uh, breaking news up on uh, CNN about incendiary rounds. They believe now, according to law enforcement sources tied to the investigation of the Las Vegas shooting, that incendiary rounds were fired at those air fuel um, canisters, what we call them, um, depots, uh, tanks. Thank you. Tanks is the word I was looking for. The air, the uh, the fuel tanks at the airport uh, that they were hit with incendiary rounds, which may not have ignited them. But clearly, if he picked out incendiary rounds and was trying to fire them at those tanks, he might have thought he was able to create a massive explosion, too. I mean, this guy was this guy was a psychopath who was just trying to go out in a in a massive blaze of uh, murder, terror and anarchy. So more information still coming out about this. And uh, I know that it's that there's a, a hesitancy, especially for those of for anybody who's never worked in law enforcement or has no experience of uh, carrying you know, weapons for a part of their job and putting themselves in harm's way to say, well, hold on, what happened here? But the police response, if, if we want to look at what could be done in the future to either stop this or at least mitigate the effects of a mass shooting like this, the police response has to be something we can discuss We'll reach out. We'll get people on who have deep expertise in in SWAT this week. I was going to have some people on last week, but as you can imagine, there were uh, it was very tough to coordinate schedules because there was such a high demand for those with that specific uh, background and, and previous skill set. Uh, Colby from North Carolina on WPTI. Thank you for holding, Colby. What's on your mind? Hey, no problem. I just wanted to talk about this shooting. Um, I'm a former U.S. Army veteran. Uh, and, you know, when I, when I listen to the, the audio on this, uh, it, it honestly sounds like these, this guy was using a machine gun, um, more than likely a 5.56 round just for the number of casualties he had and the low amount of fatalities. 
So uh, that's what I, I'm thinking. But before you got off for the break there, you know, I think you hit it right on the head. I, I think we're being lied to. You look at uh, Benghazi, and when that story first broke, uh, they said that it was over a movie. Uh, you look at Pat Tillman, we were lied to then. Uh, you know, that was supposed to be, he was killed charging up a hill. Uh, and, you know, we the truth finally comes out. Uh, we may never know the truth about what happened in that hotel room, who else was in there, uh, because dead men don't talk. So uh, I just wanted to point that out. Is I, I honestly think they, they had a machine gun. Uh, and also possibly two different locations when you listen to the video. So you do you think you can differentiate? And I ask this in all, in all honesty, Colby. I mean, you, you obviously have familiarity with uh, automatic weapons, which those who have served do, but very few outside of that, unless you're a, 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 you know, somebody that spends a lot of time on gun ranges. You, you think you could differentiate between bump stock fire and full auto? I mean, by ear. I know you can differentiate Absolutely. by sight, but by Absolutely. ear? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Uh, this guy had a... I counted for how long this guy... If you go to, like, one of the videos that's got good audio, you're going you're gonna to listen to this guy hammer down for 10 sustained seconds with, without any little law in, in fire. He just held the trigger. And that's a lot of ammo when you're, when you're just holding down a trigger for 10 seconds. So, and then there, there wasn't an echo in the background... And if there was an echo, it, it would have matched. It sounded like there was a, more gunfire coming off in the distance, like a, a couple blocks away. Hmm. But, I mean, I, I don't know if we'll ever really know the truth. Do, do you have, let me ask you, do, do you have any, and I, and I, I don't have one, so I, I'm not expecting you're going to say yes, but I'm just wondering, how can they get the timeline, how, how can they get the timeline wrong? I mean, this is the the law enforcement officers involved in this in Las Vegas. The ones who are speaking publicly to the media know that everything is going to be very scrutinized. And, and I think there's been a general sense of, OK, let's let them get the facts out. Let's not push too hard until they have them. But when they tell us stuff that we expect it to be accurate. Right. And especially things that are verifiable. They don't know the motive. OK, they don't know the motive. But whether the security guard was shot before all the gunfire, they can know that. Absolutely. And um, they had to, I mean, again, how, how I could they not have known that right? I mean, within within 48 hours, certainly, how could, this took a week. Right. I, again, Why? I Why'd they get that to, wrong? Just like Benghazi, just like Pat Tillman. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know why they want to lie about these things. Let's just be honest with the American people. That's all we want. We just want you to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I think there are a lot of people that are, that are very concerned that the, the timeline you know, that that their response was not rapid enough. And given the huge loss of life, uh, I, th- I think there were concerns about what that timeline of response looked like initially. That's that's my inclination. I can't assert that for fact. There might be a perfectly reasonable explanation for how they got that wrong, but I am not aware of it right now. And the pulse explanation for why they were so slow to respond and not to respond so slow to go in there. I never bought that. And that everyone just kind of right. wanted that to go away. And that was. Uh, they needed to reevaluate the operating procedures for how they deal with the inactive shooter situation in, the, in that in that police department. But anyway, uh, Colby, thank you very much for calling in from North Carolina. Thank you for your service as well. You know, uh, we'll see. Uh, Amy, let's get somebody on. I know we're going to have that guy on from SWAT from uh, last week. Let's let's reach out to him and, and bring him on and see if 
you know, what what is what is a reasonable expectation of response? I mean, I know what the NYPD response times were for a felony in progress in New York. It's fast. You call in and you say that there's, you know, something like I mean, an active shooter is going to be as much you're going to get as quick a response to that as I think you can get for absolutely anything. Uh, the NYPD response time is very rapid. And so the, the chain of events here is you have an individual security guard shot in the hallway I mean, he's probably got a, uh, I don't know what comms device he has. He's definitely got a cell phone on him, though. I mean, he's not walking. Probably has a, I don't know if it's a walkie-talkie or some kind of a push-to-talk or something. But And there's gunfire in the hallway. And then there's six minutes where nothing happens. I understand, you know, people have got to, you know, they got to get there and everything. But then the, the problem, the part of this that's most problematic is there's all this gunfire. People are dying. And the police arrive on the scene and the gunfire stops, but they don't know if it's going to start up again and they wait for an hour. That I just need an explanation for that. I, I, I may be missing something, but I don't have an answer and I want one because the response to an incident like this matters. We've got David in uh, Texas listening on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Dave. Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. I see here you're a law enforcement officer, it says up on my screen. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, just wanted to give you a little insight uh, from a from a cop's perspective. Please, please. I was asking for it, so tell me. All right. Uh, well, the reaction that for, for law enforcement-wise uh, is, is, a, is a reflection of probably the training and the amount of time and budget that the department pours into active shooter training. With judging by how I've been in law enforcement for approximately two years now, I'm former military. Uh, I've gotten maybe two training sessions on active shooter. One was in the academy, and one was uh, just for the department doing a couple hours of active shooter training. But nothing, nothing in, as in depth as I think is needed for something of like the Las Vegas scale. Okay, but I, I'm a, I, I think that there were – so let's just – with the new timeline, uh, David, and, and, and help me work through this a little bit, you've got yeah. the security guard is shot, 9.59. Six minutes later, okay. this maniac, Paddock, is unleashing lethal volleys that are killing scores of people and wounding many hundreds of people, and the firing okay. after nine minutes stops. Law enforcement – then is on scene, and I, I don't know, I, I could check to see what the specifics are of how quickly they got on scene, but I'm assuming it was relatively rapid. But from whenever they got there until when they finally went into the room, my understanding is it was an hour. And at any point that, during that hour, Paddock, could, unless Paddock killed himself as soon as law enforcement showed up, which I don't think anyone's asserting that that happened, although that could have happened. They, maybe they heard one shot and thought, oh, okay, he, he shot himself, but they're worried about bombs. I mean, there are explanations here that are possible. But at any point in that hour they're waiting, and I think it was ESU or SWAT, whatever they call it in, in Las Vegas, on the scene, Paddock could have opened up with another volley and killed another 10, 15, who knows how many people, right? So how can they absolutely. be waiting out in the hallway knowing this guy's in there and at any point in time, he could open up again and start shooting people out on the strip. Well, from a from a from a patrol officer's uh, perspective, um, a lot of these larger cities. I, I don't know how Las Vegas is, but I know with and uh, in, in Texas, some of the larger departments uh, don't carry long rifles for patrol officers. 
So literally, they're all all they're down to is uh, a handgun, maybe a couple rounds and a shotgun. And if the secure knowing if the security guard got shot um, prior to their arrival, I'm I'm sure the security guard had a radio, some way to let the, the security know, hey, I've been hit. Uh, so they're already going in there. Say the security guard shot uh, this dude. Dude's up at X level of the building, so they're going to go up there and try to take a look. Uh, and probably as soon as they looked up there with 200 rounds, I, I'm, I'm understanding it's about 200 rounds that he, he unloaded on this security officer. They're going to see all the bullet holes and the damage, and they're going to immediately back off, hold a perimeter until they can get uh, more specialized units there because they're already overwhelmed with firepower uh, on their end. So it, it does no good for law enforcement to try to barge in there when they're outgunned. So, okay, and, so a critical part of this then is finding out at what point SWAT was on scene and whether they believe that... Because if SWAT is sitting there for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes, not knowing if there could be more shooting going on, I, I think that's a procedural well, issue that needs to be discussed and addressed. Here, here's what happens when, when, when SWAT shows up, in my experience. They show up, and they, 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 form, they immediately form a plan. They immediately get their little, uh, their little area going, and they immediately pull a schematic to the building, and they start forming a plan, the plan of attack, how they're going to go in there. Uh, that, that, that takes a, maybe about 10 minutes, uh, depending on how well they know it. Uh, knowing how... Las Vegas is, I would not doubt that they have plans to go inside any of those hotels. Um, with, with that said, um, it, it, it should be, where I'm going to I'm asking, I, I want to ask you this in all, in, in all honesty, David, and I'm not trying to lead you yeah. over the other, no, none of this strikes you, the timeline change that doesn't strike you as a little, as a little strange. It, it does strike me as a little strange. Um, because I'm, I'm wondering what when that security guard actually got shot. Well, I mean, they uh, say now 9.59 p.m. and 10.06 p.m. is when the, or uh, 10.09 p.m. or something like that is when they... Yeah, and, and, and that's, 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 that's where I'm, I'm having confusion at when, with the new timeline. But I, I, I'm just trying to kind of analyze it from a, from a, from a police officer's perspective on how I would have reacted to... Oh, no, look, man, we, we appreciate it. I'm just trying to leverage your expertise here uh, and, and draw as much out of you as, as I can. I, you know, I've, no, I, I've, no, I've never carried a, carried the, uh, a gun for law enforcement and actually been a guy on, on the beat or on the street. So this is something that uh, you and, can... And, Go ahead. And just uh, understandably, like, so say the patrol, uh, say the officers get up there to the room and they see all that bullet damage and they immediately call for a, a SRT or a SWAT team or a specialized team to come up there with bigger, better guns. They're looking at all that damage. They don't know how many shooters are in that room. They that's a fair, that's a fair point. They, they could think that they there's, they, they could think that there's five guys in there all with, you know, souped up ARs. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so you, you see the 200 rounds of damage and anybody that's seen that kind of damage from, from bullets, like you go to a gun range and, like an outdoor gun range and you can see how damaged the back end is from, from all the bullets from people shooting it. That's probably what it looked like on the wall. And it just looked completely pizzaed. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So no, look, David, that, that, this, this is, this has been a very helpful comment. Thank you very much. And, uh, thank you for yeah. what you do. And we appreciate it.
You know, look, there. I'm asking the question. I know people. Are, oh, I'm asking questions. You know, like well, you know, and then they go off on. You know, was this a case of like aliens landing or Manchurian candidates? I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just there are some holes here. There's something that's a little strange. And I think what we're getting closer to is a realization that the officers, the first officers on the scene may have been and they were outgunned. So they were in a holding pattern. And the decision may have been if he's not shooting, you know, we're going to hold until we've got enough firepower to go into the room. I mean, this is a, a, a an acceptable and reasonable explanation for events. I just want to know. And it doesn't help when they get the wrong story out there. For a week, I would not be asking. Remember last week I said we got to look at the timeline because already I could tell something was off. It's just too long. It didn't make sense. I was talking about it here on the show. I said over 75 minutes. Come on. Now we're getting a little bit more of a, of a backstory to it. So we'll see. Anyway, I, I, I think we've we've done our um, we've done our point on this or we've done our part on this today. Uh, so I, I do want to move on. There's there's a big uh, a big break in the so. This is a total switch of gears, my friends. Just get ready for this. this is what we call a hard turn in the media business. So we're going to go away from the uh, whole situation, Vegas, for a little while here. We're going to talk about something else. Uh, next hour, we're joined by Ned Ryan to talk politics. Uh, we've also got Victor Davis Hanson from National Review just to shed wisdom on things because that's what VDH does. Uh, we have a, an expert on healthcare to talk to us a little bit about what a, yet another iteration of healthcare reform could look like. So Got a lot of uh, of different voices weighing in in the next hour. We'll get there, but uh, let's talk. I want to talk to you about the NFL first. Oh, also, sorry. As an aside here, uh, I'm very aware of the horrific wildfires in California. I do not know much about wildfires as a, as subject matter. I've been researching it, and we're trying to get an expert to join us tomorrow to talk about what the uh, what what can be done, and it just. Just to bring us up to speed on on what is just uh, looks apocalyptic when you see the the photos and the video of what's going on. It's one of the worst wildfires right now in in the history of the state of California. So we are following that. We're up on that story. And as soon as I either have a a deep dive worth of information on that to give you and or an expert guest, and I'm hoping it'll be tomorrow, we will get into that in in detail. Um, But coming up next here. Some big, uh, a big break in the whole NFL kneeling situation. For those of you who are uh, following that discussion and that debate pretty closely, so we'll get to that and more right after the break. Stay with me. I don't understand the NFL owners. I mean, here we're working. If somebody walks across here with a sign right now protesting, excuse me, you're going to let them do that? Nope. No. They own that theater at the time. They own that stage. Are you going to allow protests out there? They don't allow players to wear different signs on their shoes. They NBA don't allow players to stand for that. You know what? Uh, that's because they've been told to. But no one told right. Colin Kaepernick prior to that that they had to. We just sure. assumed it was the right thing to do. It's always been the right thing to do to live in this country. Sure. Thank the good Lord. We need more respect for the flag. I'm not condemning anybody or criticizing anybody. Respect the game, play the game. Uh, when you want to protest, protest when the game's over. Protest uh, whatever other way you want to. Football's been so good to these guys. It's been so good to me. Would it be your policy that either you stand for the national anthem or you don't play? Yes. I don't care who you are, how much money you make. Uh, if you don't respect our country, then you shouldn't be in this country playing football. Go to another country and play football. If you had to go somewhere else and try to play the sport, you wouldn't have a job. So 
that that would be my take. If you can't respect the flag and the country, then you don't respect what this is all about. So I would say adios. Football legends there, Joe Namath and uh, Mike Ditka, respectively, on those anthem protests, making it pretty clear where they stand on this. And I should note we've got some uh, news breaking just uh, earlier today that the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, has written a letter to all 32 league owners regarding the protests, and he has uh, said that he hopes everyone, or that uh, rather everyone should stand for the national anthem. Uh, Now, a lot of people are immediately stating that this is Trump bending the NFL to his will. I think it's just the NFL responding to the will of the American people here. It is, people sometimes forget about this, or rather media commentators forget about this, not the American people, uh, that sports is entertainment. People like or don't like, and that is that is all that there. That is what it is, right? I mean, if people don't want to watch, they don't want to watch. If people don't like you, they don't like you. No one has a right to play in the NFL. You know, you haven't earned the earned the right to be paid millions and millions of dollars if people don't want to watch you and pay all that money to see you uh, play football, right? Or any sport for that matter. You know, I mean, this is all market based. There, there's a reason that there aren't a ton of professional water polo players swimming around in the equivalent of, I don't know, like an underwater Lamborghini, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's a reason these guys don't make so much money because people don't want to watch that sport. If people don't want to watch football for whatever reason, that's it, right? That's the market speaking. This is, we can politicize this all day and talk about the first amendment or not and all that stuff. But the ratings, I think are the same. You saw this with the uh, Jamel, uh, what's her last name? Jamel Hill suspension, say something really nasty about President Trump, they're going to get annoyed at you. Go after the revenue source for ESPN or for a team, and you're going to get suspended, right? The the, the dollar speaks here uh, very loudly, and, and I think that's probably what's pushing Goodell here to say that he's, he wants everybody standing. They want every every team, they want everybody standing for that anthem. And, I, and, you know, if, if they can tell you that you can't do a certain dance in the end zone without getting fined, they can fine you for doing something during the anthem. I, this is, I hate to break it to people. That's just reality. This is the way that employment works. Uh, but I, I was talking to Tyrone in the break, and he has an interesting uh, additional insight into why Goodell may be singing this tune now. Tyrone, what's going on with this? Well, it's kind of why they got there at this point and not sooner. The digital rights deal, because right now you still need TV or direct TV. You know, you need cable to watch games. And if you go, if you cut the cord, there's ways, but they're not perfect to watch all the games. A digital rights deal is coming, and there's a bunch of people competing because everybody's cutting the cord, et cetera, et cetera. Google, Hulu, we, we know all the players. That's going to be an additional revenue stream for the league that the players technically don't have a right to. And they were going to use this in bargaining because they need some goodwill with the players because of the CTE issue, poss- uh, mostly, that they were going to use this as a way to negotiate everybody standing up. And the way they were looking at it was at the time, initially, there was only six players and they thought it would go back to being six players. Hold on, let me, let me just help unpack all the knowledge you're, you're, uh, you're dropping here for a second. Um, first, CTE, for those listening, I know you know, and I, but CTE is, is effectively brain damage, right? The, from the brain damage the brain cases. damage from, the, from football, right. So that looms over all this. And then you're saying that the NFL players, based on previous contracts, don't have 
they necessarily do not have access to the digital rights. And so the league is trying to use this issue as they're basically saying stand and maybe you'll get a piece of those digital rights. Is that the way that that was the plan? But now it's been accelerated and now they'll have one less bargaining chip because the players could say, you know what? We want 55 percent of that money. We want 60 percent of that new money because the players are with the TV money. They get 55 percent with the digital rules. It was whatever. And now they may and they thought, well, we can get the players to accept less money because everything the NFL does, everything they do is about money. It, that's just what they are. And that's part of the reason why they missed the mark here, because think about your life. Whenever you do something just for money, how often has it been profitable in the long run? And the NFL's moves have been just about money. Thursday night football should not happen because of player safety. They have it. Why? Solely because of money. Fans didn't ask for it. They right. do things solely for money. And they were going to use this as leverage to get them to stand and say, hey, we'll give you a bone on this money. And, and what kind of, I mean, we're talking about NFL rights. Uh, didn't, e, was it was it NFL that ESPN like wildly overpaid for the right. TV rights, right? And that's one of the reasons they've had, they've had to fire a lot of journalists and everything. This is billions of dollars, right? This is, is billions of dollars. And now with, the, and the reason that they, that people aren't worried about ratings so much anymore is because it's about how much will somebody pay? And they know if ESPN won't pay, Amazon might. Or Hulu might, or Netflix might, or Twitter might, or Facebook might, and they all have money. Yeah. So if ESPN doesn't, they do. And still, even in their diminished capacity, having all those eyeballs from the NFL all on Facebook watching, that's a lot of eyeballs. Yeah, people, thank you so much, Tyrone. Um, uh, people, people pay a lot of money in the media business just for relevance. This is why uh, this is maybe a, a little bit of inside baseball, but it has nothing to do with sports. Has to do with media. Uh, you had the acquisition of the Huffington Post by AOL years ago, which has now also been acquired, right? But it's because AOL is like, well, we got all this money, but we got to be more than just the thing that that people basically are paying for. They don't have to pay for, so they could have internet and, and email access, right? You've got mail, like that, that's people were still a lot of people paying like ten or fifteen bucks a month for AOL. I mean, millions of people. Uh, as of at least a few years ago. So they acquired the Huffington Post for, I think it was like 250 or $300 million. It was something like that. And the Huffington Post has just, just as far as I know, just loses money every year. It just loses money all the time. So they paid a whole lot of money for an asset that just loses money. Why do you do that? Because it, it, it can give the broader enterprise a sense of relevance. And whether it's a good decision or not, I don't know. But anyway, fascinating stuff in the NFL, Ty. Thank you. And... uh yeah, Goodell. Um, you know, no matter what, though, I mean, Ty's given us the, the background of what's really going on here with the money and the contracts. The political perception of this, you're all quite aware of this. Political perception is Trump has won. I mean, when you've got when you've got the owner, I mean, or the uh, commissioner of the NFL saying he wants everybody to stand, that is a different, a different perspective, a different tune he is singing. And what, no matter what you think of Trump in this whole thing, the perception is that uh, he has trumped the NFL on the issue of the anthem and the flag. Uh, we have a, an all-star lineup of some great and insightful guests coming up here in just a moment, uh, including Victor Davis Hanson and Ned Ryan. This is the way, this is what they think about President Trump behind closed doors. He happened to tell the New York Times exactly what I thought. It's so, by the way, Phil Rucker, yesterday in the Washington Post, the buried lead was, he said, there's only two or three senators on Capitol Hill that have President Trump's back. When you want to talk about why there's no repeal and replace, why there's no tax cut, why there's no tax reform, why there's no infrastructure bill, you saw it right there. Corker, McConnell and Corker and the entire clique establishment globalist clique on Capitol Hill have to go. If Bob Corker 
has any honor, any decency, he should resign immediately. Senator Corker is an absolute disgrace. Well, that's a, that's a lot. We've got a lot to get through here. We've got our friend Ned Ryan on the line to talk to us about all these different stories yeah. swirling together. He is the founder and CEO of American Majority Action and former presidential writer for George W. Bush. Ned, great to have you back. Hey, good to be back with you, Buck. Uh, the, the Trump Tillerson thing, is this a nothing or do you think Tillerson's on the way out? What's going on here? I, I think that uh, Tillerson will be there as long as he wants to be. Um, I think that there are some people stirring the pot uh, based off their own personal uh, you know, agendas. But uh, I think Tillerson will be there as long as he wants to be. And quite frankly, I, I see the media trying to stir the pot on this, but I know that there's some others that are doing their best to see uh, for their own personal agendas, wanting to see something happen. But I don't see Tillerson leaving anytime soon. Okay, so that one looks like we don't have to worry too much about it. But the the back and forth with uh, Corker and Trump, uh, I, I see he calls him what's he called Little Lil Little L I D D L. Yeah, Little Little Bob Corker. Little Bob Corker. I said last night on HLN, I was like Corker's begging for a nickname, and sure enough, he's got one now. But is this is this indicative of a bigger problem that Trump's going to have with the Senate, or is the Senate going to realize that they're all going to get tossed out of office if they don't work with Trump to get something done? I, I don't know if they have really understood or realized yet that if they don't get something done, obviously, I mean, you played Bannon's clip earlier. These guys are in a world of hurt next year. Those that are on the ballot are going to be in a lot of trouble because uh, the American people are just put out with this. And, and the thing that I've said both repeatedly on radio and TV is this. This isn't a Trump agenda. This isn't necessarily a Republican agenda. This is just common sense. This is a common sense agenda. People want Obamacare to be dealt with. They want tax reform they want all of these things to happen, and these guys, it, Bannon's right. This is intentional inability. It's one of those things where they're like, well, we'll kind of look like we're doing something, but there's no real drive. I've been in D.C. almost 20 years. I know what it looks like when leadership wants something to happen. My dad was in the House for 10 years. When they want something to happen, people's committees, you know, uh, committee ships are on the line. Their fundraising ability is on the line. What committees they're assigned to. I mean, this is None of that has happened, especially on the Senate side, but even on the House side. There's no real effort to push any of this agenda, and it's intentional. What does uh, the Senate leadership want, Ned? I mean, what, if, if Mitch McConnell, if we could catch him in, in a moment of off, uh, off mic, off camera, just complete honesty for what he thinks is supposed to happen, is it status quo? I mean, does he just, I, do you think, object I, to the whole notion of Trump shaking things up and, and changing the way D.C. operates? I think he does. I think, honest. if you were to have an honest conversation, they're quite content. The swamp to them is a very nice hot tub. They feel very good where they're at. Um, Trump coming in has, you know, is really upsetting the status quo, not only for the establishment of Republicans, but let's not forget there is an entire infrastructure behind these guys, corrupt consultants, special interests. They don't want to see some of this stuff happen because it upsets the apple cart that they are in control of. And I've, I've said it on TV, Mitch McConnell would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And he, he's making it very clear he has no intention of, being, of moving really of his own volition. And so what you see Bannon doing with some of these Senate races, and he's going to do some gubernatorial as well, is really saying, okay, if you're not going to move, then there will be consequences for it. And, and the end goal, I know, with Bannon is to make sure Mitch McConnell – and his leadership, current leadership team, are not in control come February, uh, January of 2019. Well, let's talk for a moment about what Bannon said uh, last night on Sean Hannity's show. He stated very openly that he thinks that every Republican should be primaried in the Senate except for 
uh, Ted Cruz, or at least he's willing to do that. Uh, Ted Cruz was the only one that I can think of or that I that I remember him saying, not Ted Cruz, everybody else. Now, maybe he's just trying to get senators attention. That seems like a massive effort. But Bannon is a man oh, no. of uh, large ambition and sense of mission. What do you what do you make of those comments? Oh, th- this is not a joke. This is not this is not showmanship. I know for a fact, having been in some of the meetings, this is a very legitimate effort. He will have probably 16 to 19 credible Senate and gubernatorial candidates uh, that he'll be behind in 2018. Uh, some of them obviously are going to be re- you know, primary challengers to senators. And then some are getting lined up to take on who he thinks are very vulnerable Democrat senators sitting in red states. So, no. I mean, Bannon's not talking. He's not blowing smoke. I know for a fact this will be well-funded. I've seen some of the candidates. I know some of the candidates. Uh, these are good, strong, credible candidates who are anti-establishment. Many of them have said they're not going to vote for Mitch McConnell as leader. So you, so this is a real movement. You're telling me this is this is not just bluster from 100%. Bannon to, to push, and, which, by the way, I think you could argue that that serves a purpose in and of itself. But you're saying, oh, no, 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 there are actual steps being taken right now to push some of these croniest D.C. swamp GOP senators out of office. Absolutely. 100 percent. I've been in some of the meetings. This is a real effort. It will be well-funded. And i got to tell you, too, Buck, some of these candidates, the establishment is going to be hard-pressed to not say, you know what, these are good candidates, and they are. They're good, solid you know, attractive, very well-spoken candidates who know what they need to do, who have a very specific idea about what they're going to do when they come to D.C., and they are being asked, will you vote for Mitch McConnell as leader, yes or no? And it's not just a mild no, it is a very adamant no, because a lot of these guys and gals are realizing the real problem that we're experiencing right now in D.C., if you were to just say one spot where there's trouble, it's Senate leadership. And, and Bannon is very much focused on this. This is not blowing smoke. This is very real. It will be well-funded. There will be fireworks in 2018. I also get the sense that uh, with Trump signing or, or the, the expected signing of an executive order on health care uh, coming up this week, actually, we've got some sound on that. And I'll also be signing something probably this week, which is going to go a long way to take care of many of the people that have been so badly hurt on health care. And they'll be able to buy. They'll be able to cross state lines and they will get great competitive health care. And it will cost the United States nothing. With Congress the way it is, I decided to take it upon myself. So we'll be announcing that soon as far as the signing is concerned. But it's largely worked out a very uh it's very simple in one way, but very intricate in another. But it will be great, great health care for many, many people. Uh, Ned, it seems to me like Trump is now taking the position. I'm doing everything that I literally can for my agenda on health care specifically, but in right. general. And look at the Senate when you want to know why stuff isn't gonna, uh, getting done. I, I feel like th- this is now the paradigm. This is the, the narrative going into the midterms already being established before us. Oh, 100%. And, and he's right. I mean, and people are starting to realize the real problem has been the Senate. I would argue some some of the problems have been with the House, but you can really look and lay a lot of blame at the Senate. But, you know, if Trump wants to get really serious about health care reform. He removes the exemption for Congress and their staff to be exempt from Obamacare. He could do that through an executive order, say you're no longer going to be considered this arbitrary small business. You are all going into the Obamacare exchanges. That would bring action to Congress, Buck. 
Ned Ryan is founder and CEO of American Majority Action, and to check out his latest columns, The Hill, is that the best place to find you, Ned? Yeah, uh, yeah, The Hill, Hill.com, I write some opinion pieces there, and every now and then for Fox News Opinion, but uh, every week, every Sunday for The Hill. All right, great. Thank you so much, Ned. Great to have you on. Thanks, Buck. Yeah, they're they're getting ready for a showdown here within the GOP. I, I think that there was a time, even a few months ago, when the idea was, well, if if it doesn't get done in Trump's, you know, first year or two, Trump is going to be blamed, or at least some people seem to think that that was the way this would play out. But now, in fact, what we see is that the Senate seems more likely, the Republican-controlled Senate seems more likely to get the blame. We'll be following this more going forward. All right, welcome back, everyone. Healthcare still hasn't been fixed, in case you uh, didn't pick up on that already. The Republicans can't figure out how to repeal and replace. They can't figure out how to adjust and tweak. They can't even figure out what they want to figure out. So what should they do? What should the government do? What would be the best for all of us when it comes to health care in the era of Obamacare? To answer that question for us, we've got Dr. Scott Atlas on the line. He is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's got an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, the health care reform that has not been tried. Dr. Atlas, great to have you. Pleasure to be here. All right. What is this health care reform that has not been tried? Well, the point is the focus has been entirely wrong, whether from the Obamacare supporter side or the Republican proposal side. The focus has been on just simply increasing the number of people with health insurance, whether through regulations or direct subsidies or tax credits in the, uh, in the Republican side. The reality is the effective reform and a more direct path to getting people access to the world's best health care, which we have here, is to bring down the prices of care instead of the prices of uh, or subsidizing the prices of premiums, because insurance premiums are secondary. About 80% of an insurance premium, roughly, is due to the, the medical care costs. And my point is, if you bring down the price of medical care, everything else follows. Premiums come down, government expenditures for health care comes down. But the key is, how do you bring down the price of care? The answer is not the way other countries with nationalized single-payer systems do it, because the only way that those governments hold down costs of care is to restrict health care access, health care usage, delays in drugs, delays in technology, etc. Yes. We have another proven way to bring down costs, and we've done it in every other good or service in America. And that basically is the fundamental uh, of empowering and equipping consumers to consider prices and giving them something to gain by spending less money, <clears throat> increasing the supply of medical care, and stimulating competition. And that is how prices come down while quality actually goes up. Speaking is Dr. Scott Atlas. He's a senior fellow at the uh, Hoover Institution at Stanford. Uh, so, Dr. Atlas, what, how, give me some of the ways that how could the Republican Congress actually do this? What would that look like mechanically sure. from a legislative point of view? What could they do? Sure. Well, the first part, uh, equipping consumers to actually care about the price, the way it works now with our insurance uh, as it is, is that it's basically minimizing out-of-pocket costs. And therefore, when no one knows or, or pays, they think someone else is paying, of course, there's no incentive to even care what it costs. That's the cycle that we're in right now. So the effective reform would be 
first and foremost, broaden the availability of higher deductible insurance plans that are cheaper with fewer mandated requirements, as opposed to what Obamacare did, which is massively increase those requirements and make insurance much more expensive and broader. I want to have the deductibles higher so that people actually pay and consider price and simultaneously make health savings accounts not only eligible for everyone, including people on Medicare, but much, much larger and liberalize in their uses. And with that comes a, a desire to save money. I mean, that's, that's the whole point about looking, uh, shopping around for something that, uh, concerning price is that you actually you keep the money if you don't spend it on things you don't want. And, and that, of course, is something that many people argue is not possible with health care. But the reality is it's only the minimum, 5 or 6% of health care is emergency. No one's saying you're going to shop around when you're having crushing chest pain in an ambulance. But the reality is, you know, 60% of health care expenditures are outpatient. We can shop around and seek value with that. And when you have control of the money, you would seek value. And that we know from the data when that's done, even in healthcare, makes prices come down. Doc, so the second part. Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say the second part that's necessary is to increase the supply of medical care. And how do we do that? Well, in primary care, we know there's a shortage of doctors that people talk about. The answer is that you don't need an MD degree to monitor someone's blood pressure, to look at somebody with the flu, and these other things. And I'm an MD, so I feel comfortable in saying that. The scope of practice limits on nurse practitioners and physician assistants needs to be relaxed so that routine outpatient primary care can be done. And why? Because it's 40% cheaper when those people do it. And, it, and actually the studies have shown that there's, there's no problem with the outcomes of patients and there's actually high satisfaction. Similarly, specialist care. Most sick patients are taken care of by specialists, as we know, almost all really. But the reality is that the medical societies have artificially restricted the number of residency spots and the number of training spots, and that restricts competition. That's sort of protectionist, anti-consumer behavior. We also know medical school graduation numbers have stagnated for four decades. Meantime, we need more doctors. So this kind of stuff needs to be exposed at least. And, you know, there'd be some pressure really to open up that. Is and anyone, is anyone pushing for that, any of this, Doc? I mean, you know, we've been looking at various iterations of a, a not even a repeal and replace of Obamacare, just changes to it by the Republican majority Congress. Is there anyone out there in the legislative side of, of things that is actually trying to do some of the stuff that you're talking about to us right now? Or is this... Is this a radical concept now because Americans just have all agreed on both sides of the aisle, more or less, somebody else has to pay for their health care? Yeah, well, this is sort of a radical concept, although there, the Republican proposals have uh, focused on increasing, for instance, the uh, use and the size of health savings accounts, for instance, but that's not enough. I mean, the focus really has been on getting people insured any way possible. And that really is a secondary problem. In fact, it's, it's, it's harmful to target that because what you do by doing that is subsidize and incentivize these bloated health insurance uh, you know, uh, packages that, that are, have the wrong incentives. This is all about changing the incentives so that people actually care what the value and price of their health care is. And that the way to do that really is through the competition for consumers' money. We know that's why the supercomputer in your pocket 
that you call a cell phone is, is hundreds of dollars and not tens of thousands, even though it's so powerful. It's because of competition for, for buyers. And that's exactly the kind of thing that should be done with healthcare. We have to get rid of this hyper-regulated environment that is counterproductive and harmful and actually secondarily raises the price of medical care. And there's also a third component besides the supply and the uh, vehicles to, for consumers, and that is the right incentives have to be built into the tax code. We know the biggest mistake of all of the U.S. tax code, really, is probably this unlimited income exclusion or deduction for health uh, care expenses, particularly through your employer. All that does is incentivize people to spend more and more on health care for insurance products that mask the price of health care. In fact, it's the only good or service, if you think about it, that you use without even knowing what it costs. You get the bill later. And why is that? Because no one cares, because the insurance covers essentially everything. So the tax code has to be changed, and that kind of overlaps with the tax reforms that are being spoken about today. That's Dr. Scott Atlas, everybody, senior fellow at Hoover Institution at Stanford University, up in the Wall Street Journal, the health reform that hasn't been tried. Here's a hint. It involves the free market and actual prices. All right, Dr. Atlas, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Team, we are going to roll into a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, team, welcome back. We've been talking uh, about everything going on with the left and its uh, virtue signaling this week and, quite honestly, every week. We've got a piece from Victor Davis Hansen that I want to talk to you about now. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, an American military historian and a columnist at National Review. His latest is a vicious virtue. When tragedy strikes, you probably deserve it if you're conservative. It's up on NationalReview.com. Victor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your piece, this vicious virtue that if you bad things happen to you and you're conservative, you deserve it. Yeah, I think it's because the left looks at everything in a cosmic fashion that any means necessary are okay to achieve these exalted uh, aims or agendas, which are mostly in a quality result. So if individual things happen to people who are not on that agenda, whether it's Steve Scalise being shot or the people who were conservative maybe at a country western concert in Las Vegas, or people in a red state at Herma and Hurricane Irma and Harvey, then as you saw with the CBS legal counsel or with Joy Reid or people on the internet would just get on and say, you know, these people really deserve what they got because they're not part of the progressive project and therefore they have to sort of pay the price. I also think that there's much more acceptance of this, Victor, on, on the left, including from, from journalists than many people would readily admit, meaning that even those who don't necessarily engage in this kind of, uh, you know, vicious virtue signaling, if you will, where they say, oh, well, these these bad conservatives, something terrible happened to them, they deserve it, that it's not shouted down, that it doesn't seem that there's much self-policing of this on the left. Not at all. You're absolutely right. I mean, we're having a horrendous series of fires in Napa, a very left-wing boutique um, place in California, but I haven't heard any conservative express anything other than lamentation and sympathy and anger that would, that maybe this happened. But that was not true with the, uh, wasn't true at all with the um, hurricanes that hit Florida and Texas. I think that's because conservatives look at individuals rather than global causes and collectives. They seem to, they're more traditional and, and I think what's happened to the left, they've given up the individual morality 
for the the global agenda. But it also works both ways. If you're if you're on the left and you do bad things or bad things happen to you, then there's a lot of contextualization and, and sympathy. We see that in in the case of particulars like Harvey Weinstein. And people knew that for 30 years, but they were willing to overlook that because of a global agenda that he was a man of the left in a way they... Yeah, this is something I've been talking about on the show, Victor. I, I don't. Anyone coming out now as part of the pylon? I mean, Hillary Clinton's statement about how she's appalled. I mean, yeah, there are, there are allegations today in print that he's raped people. I mean, any normal human being would be appalled by this. That's not bravery. And I would argue that they waited until Harvey Weinstein had a whole lot less sway and power within the culture before they decided that they would feed him to the lion, so to speak. Well, he knew that, too, and that's why the first thing he said was that he was taking on the NRA or he was donating to a women's group, sort of analogous to what Larry Summers said when he got on the wrong side of the thought police by at Harvard when he said the first thing he was going to do was endow a $50 million feminist uh, scholarship fund endowment at Harvard. And I think that's what left people, left-wing people do. They take out an indemnity policy. They think that if they're loudly progressive, then that ensures them from imperfections in their character. Well, because the global cause is always more important than the individual details or circumstances. Well, it seems to me as well that it's almost like on the left you can purchase an indulgence, right? If you, yeah, I, mean, medieval, I see this it's, with... It's, very with good. it's exactly what it is. It's the medieval penance or indulgences, and people know it, so it puts enormous pressure on people in Hollywood or entertainment or in the academic world. They think, wow... I may or not, I may or may not believe in the progressive cause, but I might as well buy an insurance policy because over my 30-year career, something's going to happen badly, and I'll need an insurance, or maybe something will happen good if I toe the line. So, and you're also seeing this with Weinstein and others when it comes to donations to districts uh, or district attorneys as a means of buying a little a little leverage or a little get out of jail free card in the future as well. I think the amount of corruption on that is really staggering. It is. That was the message. If you're a young director, you can get away for 30 years by mouthing the right platitudes. Victor Davis Hansen is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, American military historian. Uh, I am, by the way, uh, a, a big fan of your books on ancient Greece. I just want to point that out, Victor. So thank well, you thank very you. much for uh, for your writings. Uh, a War Like No Other is probably my favorite, so I'll give thank that you. one a plug. Well, I have a book on World War II coming out this week, so maybe you'd like to Oh, well, that's second, great. Second Come and talk Wars. to us. What's the name of the, what's the title of the book? The Second World Wars, Pearl. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll have you back to talk about it. Victor okay. Davis uh, Hanson, everybody. Victor, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, team, that was, um, that was the man himself, VDH, over at the Hoover Institution. Um, I, I'm going to close today because I know we've, we've – it's been a lot of pretty heavy subjects for the most part today. I mean, you know, I try to – Work in a bit of levity. For those of you who spend the full three hours with me, I don't want this to feel like you're, you know, in a in a intense place psychologically for the whole time. So uh, I will talk to you about cell phones in a few minutes. But I think it's interesting. There's some science. There's some social discussion. And um, maybe I'll try to make fun of myself at some point or something like that. So we will get to that in just a moment. Uh, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. If you want to squeeze in a call before we close up shop, we'll be back in just a few. If I were trying to write a snappy magazine essay headline, it would be, for the next segment, Weapons of Mass Distraction or something like that. If I were doing a local news broadcast to get your attention, I'd say, is your smartphone making you dumber? News at 11. 
And it's a worthwhile question because there's new research. And I, I believe, I want to, don't want to take credit for something that's not true. I believe I alluded to this recently that your smartphone has some big downsides to it. And the, the idea that smartphones could actually be making us a little dumber is something that we need to pay attention to. So here's what we know. And this is a piece in the Wall Street Journal that uh, builds on this, this concept. Uh, it, the title is How Smartphones Hijack Our Minds. Research suggests that as the brain grows dependent on phone technology, the intellect weakens. I've been thinking this for a while, that we now have this conception that we all carry so much information on our phone that knowledge isn't as useful as it used to be because everyone has infinite knowledge at the push of a button. But for the purposes of cognition and wisdom and uh, complex analysis, you can't just be looking at life as an endless series of Wikipedia searches. Knowing stuff matters because what you know affects everything else that you learn, right? There's more complexity that all of us have with information and facts than just being able to pull them up. You know, it's more than just access to the fact when you need it. Knowing it affects the way that other information is stored in your brain and it affects the way that you approach complicated thoughts and analysis. But let, before I get too deep into, into that side of this discussion, let me first start with another part of it, which has to do with the weapons of, dis, weapons of mass distraction component, because this is very real. And I have this in my day-to-day -day life. I've been making uh, a real effort when I'm with Molly not to be on my phone. And that doesn't just mean when I'm talking to her, I don't have my phone out looking at it, because that's rude. And it doesn't even just mean that when I'm at the dinner table and I have some close friends that do this and it really bothers me, uh, they put their phone out on the table. So like I get to stare at the computer on the table and it'll vibrate and it'll flash with a new message. And no, no, phone in the pocket or if you're worried about the radiation, phone on the chair, you know, next to you or just find something else. But phone up on the table is distracting and it's rude and people need to not do it I'm, I'm going to draw a hard line on this and people need to not put their phones on the table i mean if you're at a work meeting and you know, okay fine but if you're in any kind of a social setting where people are trying to enjoy themselves and have a relaxing time no phones on the table i'm going to go even crazier here i wish that there were restaurants that had a no cell phone policy now, now that doesn't mean if your phone rings and it obviously should be on vibrate because we are not savages in the restaurant, right? Like your phone should be on vibrate, uh, but you can step outside. It's like the quiet car on the train, but a restaurant. But you can talk, you just can't be on your cell phone. Uh, that would be great. I, I would be all about that restaurant. I would support it as much as possible. This is etiquette that is changing and our dependency on these phones is growing all the time. They're a part of our business and our day-to-day -day lives in a way that far outpaces what the cell phone of even 15 years ago was, right? It used to be that, you know, someone could call you, but unless you were like a sports agent or something or a telemarketer, you weren't on your phone all the time or, you know, a, a high school kid. I spent way too much time on the phone in high school. Uh, there were some limitations built in. Now it's you can do business, you can do shopping, you can do research, you can write emails. It's just 
your whole life gets caught up in this device. And the device is distracting. And this is what's so interesting from this Wall Street Journal piece, because hashtag science. The device is distracting to people even when it is not actively in use, which is why I hate the device up on the table situation. What they find from the research is that when they measure tasks of cognition, right, of of mental ability, and people have a phone either out or with them in a room, but they're supposed to focus on everything other than the or something other than the phone that is uh, mentally intensive, uh, that requires real intellectual power, right? That if the phone is in the other room, people tend to do better. Because once the phone is in the room, it's not just the, is it ringing, is it vibrating? It's the draw of, is it going to ring? Is it going to vibrate? Is, th- is this device going, am I going to have to engage with it? Right? Think about it this way. When you put your smartphone out on the table during a meal, it's as though you are taking an old rotary phone and just going black and whacking it down on the table. The phone may not ring, but every time you see that phone, your brain's thinking, oh, the phone, maybe the phone's going to ring. I wonder who's going to call me. I guess the phone could ring. Maybe I shouldn't pay attention to what's going on here because the phone might ring. We need to draw some lines here. And I've been getting better about this. And you know, to Molly's credit, she's very, she's, you know, put your phone away. She's always saying, put your phone away. And I, I'm, getting, I'm getting pretty good about it now. Because um, I, I don't do the, the, the dinner thing. And that's just, you know, that's for barbarians. You don't, you don't put your phone out in a social dinner on, to, on the table. I'm sorry. Uh, but, and I know people do it. And I know there are people listening who do it. And you're not actually barbarian. But I'm just trying to make a point. Uh, but I'm, I'm seeing that this now is important even in my private life, in my personal life. You know, when I'm with Molly or I'm with my, I'm very close with my siblings and my parents. When I'm with my family, phones away. You know, you can do this thing where you have conversations, but you have your phone out and you think you're in the conversation, but you're really not. You're really not being present and giving it your full attention. So in terms of a distraction device, there's no question that phones are uh, really insidious in that way, right? That they take, even when they're not, this is the thing, everyone thinks, oh, I'm not on my phone. I'm not using my phone. Yeah, but if it's out or if you honestly can even feel it, you know, in your pocket. But more importantly, if it's out and you can see it, it is distracting you. And they're testing this scientifically. It is distracting you from whatever else is going on. So, you know, if you haven't seen your wife, you haven't seen your husband in a couple of days, or it's your first date night out in a while, no phones. Not out, not used, away. Phones go away. You know, these are decisions that I've, I've come to this with some knowledge and and experience on this planet it's the same reason why i used to love video games but i had to stop playing video games you know why because not only was i wasting a lot of my time and look if you play games that's great for you know if if you keep it in it's it's like watching tv right you can watch a little tv and that's nice you need that escape but i know with me with with the video game if i got really into it not only was I spending time doing it, but then I was thinking about the game later on in the day or, you know, oh, I could have beaten that guy in Madden or that guy who was playing as, as Gandhi in Civilization when I was Montezuma. I could have taken him out, you know. It, no, it just was a, it was a waste for me because I couldn't put it in its, uh, in its proper 
bucket, if you will, and segment it off from the rest of my day. It was a time suck. It was a distraction, even when I wasn't actively engaged in it. And that's the way when you start thinking about phones. And then on the other part of this, which is really what I referenced a few weeks ago, and there's more research about this in this piece in the Wall Street Journal. The other part of it is that your, your brain, people say things like your brain is like a muscle. And everyone's like, well, in terms of the tissue, that's obviously not true. Brain tissue is not. Okay, yeah, but using your brain does. And I should note, the brain is like not the final frontier, but it's like one of the last frontiers of we know more than we've ever known, but in fact, we're learning more and more about what we, how much we don't know as well. Uh, and the more you use your brain in, and, and exercise its cognitive functions, it obviously helps and improves cognitive function. And recall and memory is, if not a, a, a skill that you can sort of work on, it, it's at least something that, well, no, it is a skill that you can work on. I mean, I, I think that's very clear. There's a lot of research that goes to that. It just—it doesn't mean that you can all be—we can all become a genius. It's not like if you do enough push-ups, you'll be able to do 100 push-ups, right? I don't know how much you can expand your recall ability, but it certainly is better when you use it more. And relying a lot on phones means that you are less likely to be somebody who is very uh, involved in you know, efforts to recall information. Um, I, you know, the phone should be a tool. It should not be a crutch for your mind. I'm talking about now really surfing the internet and the other things that we do uh, with our phones and, and the research capabilities that they have. I'm somebody who has always taken great pleasure in when I'm reading a book and I see something that's just really interesting and then I want to share it, you know? So yeah, I'm, I'm the dork who would be at a cocktail party and would say, you know, uh, hey, you know, did you know the necktie became fashionable in France, in Paris first, and they call it a cravat because it is a version of the word cravati, which were, uh, or who were Croat mercenaries with a brightly colored piece of cloth around their neck that were conscripted into Louis XIV's army, uh, or not conscripted, were hired, they're mercenaries, into Louis XIV's army. Uh, that's where we get cravat and the necktie from. You know, I used to like to tell people stuff like that if I had read it at a book somewhere. And now people go, oh, I saw that on Wikipedia. Okay, fine. Yeah, we can all find this stuff on Wikipedia now. But knowing it and having it at your, at your intellectual retrieval is important. And holding information in your head matters. And I think that that's what the research into smartphones is increasingly showing us. But the, the biggest thing, I'm just, and this is, I'm telling you this in large part also as a reminder to myself. Be present, put the phones away, no phones on the table during dinner, and especially when it's, you're with that special someone and it's your time, the, the phone is the enemy. Not just when you're on it, not just when you're using it, put it away. It distracts and it limits your ability to be present and really enjoy the experience. Keep those phones away. Um, unless you're opening up the phone to download the Buck Sexton with America Now podcast. That's always acceptable. Or to listen to me on the iHeart app. I don't care if you are at uh, Le Cirque or uh, Balthazar in New York City or the Ivy in LA or whatever fancy restaurant you can think of wherever you are in the country. Uh, it's always acceptable to pull out uh, the iHeart app and listen to Buck Sexton with America Now. Please do subscribe on iTunes. And until tomorrow, friends, Shields High.